One of my uh, favorite places in New York City, and many of you know that you know, our family, we lived in New York for um, you know, about the previous 10 years before moving here to Pasadena. One of my favorite places in New York is uh, Grand Central Terminal, or sometimes Grand Central Station, which is right in the, the heart of, um, of Midtown Manhattan. It's an iconic building. Uh, has a lot of kind of a sentimental um, place in my heart, too, because uh, I would meet my wife, Rochelle, as she would take the train down from New Haven, Connecticut, and I was living in Queens, and we were dating, and I would get to see her. Uh, we would see each other in this, this amazing train station the, in, there in Grand Central. But, you know, back in uh, the 1970s, there was actually uh, plans to destroy Grand Central Station and to build a skyscraper in its place. Uh, the, the railroad that owned the station was nearing bankruptcy. And so they wanted to make some money by selling the rights to a company that would buy, that would build this skyscraper. But the, the snag in their plan was that Grand Central had been designated as a landmark building and it was protected. And so the railroad sued and claimed that the landmark law was unconstitutional. And they actually won that case, and they prepared to destroy the station. Well, a bunch of people who wanted to preserve Grand Central got together and tried to convince the mayor of New York at the time, Abe Beam, to appeal the court's decision and to get the landmark law reinstated. Um, but Mayor Beam didn't want to appeal the ruling because it was going to be very costly to fight in the courts, and the city was basically broke um, in the 70s. And then along came Jackie Kennedy Onassis, um, who got behind this push to save Grand Central Station. And, and she um, spoke at a press conference, this is actually a picture from that, where, um, and then wrote a letter to Mayor Beam, which began, Dear Abe, how President Kennedy loved Grand Central Terminal. Um, and so finally, uh, with this push from, from Jackie O, she uh, the, the, finally, the mayor agreed to appeal this decision, um, even though it would be costly, but eventually the city won, and the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which also ended up sit, siding with the city, and as a result, Grand Central Station was saved um, and still remains there today. You know, in, in order to save this, this iconic station, Grand Central, there was a cost involved. Um, and, and that is true for saving most things, that, that there's often a cost involved to saving something or someone. And we're going to see that in our text today. We've been going through a, a sermon series called David, a man after God's own heart, looking at uh, the life of, of David, who is the second king of Israel. Um, and uh, in, in today's text, we're actually kind of nearing the end of this series. Uh, next week is going to be kind of our, our, my final message in this series. And, you know, to, to explore all of David's life, we would take a few more months. <laughs> There's a lot of places that we're, we're not having time to look into. But, uh, but in today's text, I wanted to focus on this text in particular um, because it's, it's kind of a, a powerful moment where we find uh, the people of Jerusalem in a situation where they were about to be destroyed. Um, like Grand Central Station. And, but someone steps in, just kind of like, like Jackie Onassis steps in to try to advocate to save. And in this situation, it's actually David. David, King David, um, is called to step up in order to try to rescue and save the people. Um, but as he does, there is a cost involved to saving them. And so my sermon title today is The Cost of Salvation. And we're going to look at 
that cost in this incident uh, from, from David's life. And then also um, looking forward to the ways that we see that this um, incident actually point ahead to the cost of salvation in our lives as well and in our world. So our text today is from 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, uh, verses 1 to 25. I'm going to kind of um, skip a, a certain section just to kind of, for the sake of time, but we'll be reading through most of that chapter, Psalm 20, uh, 2 Samuel 24. It's on page 234 in the Pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. So 2 Samuel 24, beginning with verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. I'm going to skip over verses 5 to 9 that basically just describes the process of that census, of counting the men um, and, and, and the result of that. So we're just going to jump down to, to verse 10. It says, David, after, this, after the census, after the counting of the men, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent the plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity. And said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let 
my Lord, the king, take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into this, this uh, challenging text in many ways, Lord, of, of seeing uh, destruction, and, and, um, but also this, this moment where David stepped in. And Lord, we just pray that you'd give us insight to understand this text more fully, and, and especially what it's teaching us about uh, your salvation and, and the way that you work, God. And, and so um, we just invite your Holy Spirit to, to speak to us now and give us open ears and sensitive hearts, too, to what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we, uh, before we kind of get to um, talking about the cost of salvation, um, I want to start by, by looking at first the need for salvation. Um, uh, wh- where do we see a need for salvation in this passage? Um, why is there a need for salvation in our lives and in our world? And, and the fact that, that we need saving um, starts with this reality that we trust in things other than God. That we trust in things other than God. Um, in our text, we find that David wants to take a census of Israel to count the number of fighting men. Now, at first, at first glance, this doesn't seem like necessarily in, it, in itself a bad thing to do. Uh, there have been other times in Israel's history where they counted um, you know, people and but it's clear from our text that there's a problem here with, with this desire that David has. For, for one thing, when David mentions it to his commander, Joab, um, Joab questions David for, why do you want to do this, David? He kind of, you know, pushes back against him a little bit. But David says, well, I'm overruling you, Joab. I'm going ahead with this. And then later on, we see that David acknowledges, right, that it was sinful. Like, he, he is conscience-stricken about doing this. So he recognizes there was something in this and in taking the census that was not following God's desire, right? And we end up seeing severe consequences for this, right? We see significant result from that. So the question is, you know, that we might be wrestling with is what's wrong with the census, right? What was, what was that? What was so, what was, why was David conscience stricken? Why did the Lord treat this so significantly, right? Well, counting the fighting men, revealed something about David's heart. It revealed that he was trusting in something other than God. How do we see that? Well, David, he wants to know how much military might he has, right? He wants to know how impressive his army is. He wants to, let's, let's count it. Let's see how amazing this army is that I have. And what David's actions show is that he is trusting in military power rather than in God for his sense of security. Now, this is very different, if you notice, where we can really see this contrast from the attitude that David had in his youth when he went up against Goliath. Remember that? When he went up against the giant Goliath? When David faced Goliath, this is what he, he said. He said, all those gathered here will know that it is 
not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, right? When he was up against Goliath, he didn't care. It's not about the sword or the spear. It's about the Lord. It's his battle, right? But it seems that over time, David had begun to trust more in swords and spears, right? Um, And thought that actually the battle kind of was his, right, to win or lose. You know, I think that we can sometimes do the same thing in our lives, where we begin to to kind of uh, put our trust in things other than God. I think one of the big temptations in our society is is, is to find our security, our sense of, of safety and security in money, 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 right? In, in, in having enough, right? In, in possessions or wealth. And, you know, we, we often think that if I can just have enough of that, right, then I can live comfortably. I don't have to worry about having enough. And so kind of like David counting his troops, right? Being like, hey, look at how much I how much military might I have? Sometimes we can be tempted to, to count our money, not just to know how much we have, but, but kind of to, to, because we're sort of trusting in that for our sense of security. Um, money and security are not bad things, right? They're things that God has given to us, right? But sometimes we can tie our security to things that are other than God, right? And money can be one of those examples of ways that we might do that, where, where we are in danger of trusting in something other than God. I think one of the ways that we can begin to sense if, if, if maybe we're, we're moving in this direction where we're starting to trust in something for our sense of security other than God is if we begin to imagine how we would react if that thing was taken away from us, right? If we, if we realize that oh, if that was somehow removed from my life, how would I react, um, you know, during the, the financial crisis back in 2008, remember that when sort of there was this huge crash, right? There was a string of suicides that happened right after that um, of formerly wealthy individuals, people who lost a ton of their wealth. And their response was that they couldn't think about how they could live, how they could go on, right? And so they actually killed themselves. They couldn't bear to live because they were trusting in that for their sense of worth and their sense of security, it was clear that that's where their, their, their value, their worth was. And so a question maybe to, to think about is, where do you look for your sense of security? Where do you look for your sense of, of where I feel, okay, I'm, I'm secure, I'm safe, I'm okay, right? Sometimes it might be in a particular relationship. Um, might, it might be in, in success, right? And in, in how well you're doing in life or your job or your career or your possessions. Could even be your family, and so the question is, if whatever that thing is, what if it was taken away from you? What if that was taken away? Would you be able to go on? Or would you feel that, that it, was, it was so significant that, that, you, that you were just crushed in despair, right? Obviously, when we lose something, we're going to mourn that. It's difficult when we lose things that we, that we care about. But would we be able to trust in God? Or would we lose our trust because of that? I think all of us have a tendency to tie our security to something other than God, just like David here was tying his security to his military might. And so what happens when we recognize that? Maybe when we recognize that, that maybe we are actually putting too much of our sense of security in this thing that's other than God. Well, in verse 10 of our text, we read, when that happened to David, it says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. If you remember, you know, three Sundays ago, 
we looked at a very dark period in David's life, right? Where, where David, um, he, he slept with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and then he had Uriah killed to cover it up. And, and it took the prophet Nathan, who confronted David with his sin, right? Who came to him and told him this whole story and said, you are the man, David, right? That finally got David to admit that what he had done was, was wrong and he confessed his sin. So it's actually encouraging that it seems that David actually had learned from that incident here, right? It didn't take a prophet coming to him and saying, you are the man, David. Here, actually, his conscience tells him that he has sinned in this situation, that he's messed up by taking this census. And so David actually takes the initiative in saying to the Lord, I have sinned greatly. He acknowledges his sin. Um, and two weeks ago, we, we, when we looked at kind of the aftermath of that, when Nathan did confront him, we saw that, that, da- that God forgave David's sin, right? He said, you are not going to die to David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But we also saw there were consequences to his sin, right? That even though he was forgiven, there were consequences that resulted from what had happened. And we see the same thing in today's text. Uh, we see that, that David's pride and misplaced trust in his military power that even though maybe David was forgiven for that, when he acknowledged that, there were still consequences. And actually, in this situation, there were disastrous consequences. And this is the next part of why we need salvation. We need salvation because we, we trust in things other than God. And then our misplaced trust causes disaster. When we, when we take our trust off of God and we place it in something else, what often results is disaster. God tells David through another prophet, the prophet Gad. We, we encountered Gad uh, several weeks back, too, in another um, one, of our, one of our passages. That, that Gad tells him that, that David has three options for the consequences of his sin. He can either have three years of famine in the land, three months of war and fleeing from his enemies, or three days of plague in the land. Pretty good options, right? <laughs> um, Man, there's, there's a game that, that I would sometimes, would sometimes play when I was younger, Would You Rather, where that, that basically poses a, a choice between two really horrible options. Would you rather eat a dead rat or a live worm? Uh, would you rather kiss a jellyfish or step on a crab? There's no good answer, right? <laughs> there's just no good answer. And the same is true for David, right? He, he responds when he gets, he says, I am in deep distress, which makes sense, right? Man, there's no good way out of this. And yet what David decides to do is he picks the three days of plague because he says it's better to fall into the hands of the Lord than the hands of man. I'd rather at least put myself in a situation where where it's in God's hands rather than in in war. But the reality is we see in this text that it is is disastrous what ends up happening here. 70,000 people die in the plague. Now, there is this, this, at the very beginning of the passage, it, it talks about how the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And so um, it's very likely that part of, this is kind of going off on a tangent that I don't have time to really go into too much in this sermon today, that, that it seems like there was something that, that Israel actually deserved some judgment here too, and that, that, that this, this plague was actually connected to something else too. So it wasn't only David's sin, right? It was also that the Lord was, was, was having to bring about this whole process and and there's a passage, the parallel passage in First Chronicles that talks about how Satan incited David and, and, uh, and, and whew, there's, there's a lot there. If you want to dig into that, we can talk about it more, but I'm not going to 
quite go on that rabbit trail today. But, but the reality is that, that, uh, that, that this is true for us too, though, right? That when we misplace our trust in God, and so again, probably Israel had misplaced their trust in God too, and that was part of the consequences for them, that it causes disaster, right? It has disastrous results. Um, it may not be three days of plague, but our misplaced trust can often have significant consequences. Um, there's a novel, another kind of older novel that, that I remember reading when I was in, in school, The Great Gatsby, um, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, that, that takes place in uh, 1922 on Long Island during kind of the Roaring Twenties, a time of prosperity um, after World War I. And uh, the, the title character of this, this book, Gatsby, He's presented as sort of this enigmatic um, host of extravagant parties thrown each week at his mansion. Um, but as the, the story unfolds, we learn more about his background, and we discover that his whole pursuit of, of wealth and kind of building up this persona was actually all about pursuing this one other woman, Daisy, this wealthy woman from his past. And, and so what you see in this, in this book is that, that Gatsby, he is placing all of his security and fulfillment in this pursuit of Daisy, of trying to get her and trying to build up all this wealth in order to, to, to get her. And what happens is as the story progresses, this dream that he has, it begins to disintegrate and disaster results. And I'm not going to go into all the details of, of, of this particular story, but, but it is a vivid portrayal of what happens when you place your trust in something other than God and how it can end in disaster that, that, that Gatsby's life sort of unravels in many ways as he's placing all of his trust in this, this woman and, and in his wealth. And, and you know, we, we mentioned this before, that, that when that collapse happened in 2008, right, where people were placing all their trust and help in, 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 in wealth, what happened? It caused disastrous results, right? It caused a financial disaster in our nation as, as people were trying to just build up money at any cost. And, 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 and just like... David's sin affected the whole nation of Israel. Sometimes our sin affects other people too, right? But here's the reality. In an even deeper way, our misplaced trust, it not only causes disastrous consequences in this world, but it actually leads to the greatest disaster, which is being separated from the God who loves us. That when we place our trust in something other than God, it results in us being separated from our God. Because what are we doing when we're placing our trust in someone other than God? We are really rejecting him. Right? We're saying, I, I'm, I'm trusting in this other thing. I don't need you, God. I need this other thing more than you. And the reality is that God is the only one who can actually provide the security that we're longing for. He's the one that can actually provide what we're looking for. But by turning away from him to these other things, we... We're creating separation from him. And, and the natural result of that is disaster. The disaster of being separated from God forever. The Bible talks about this as eternal death, eternal judgment. That that is ultimately what results from our misplaced trust. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we need salvation. We need to be saved from this disaster that we have created through our sin and our misplaced trust and David and the people of Israel, they needed salvation from that plague. The angel of the Lord was, was about to destroy Jerusalem. And in verse 17, David calls out to God and he says, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. 
What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And so David here, he cries out to the Lord for salvation for Jerusalem. He recognizes that only God can save the people. And what does he do? He offers up himself in their place. He says, let let it fall on me, God, not on them. And so this leads us now to the cost of salvation. What happens to actually save the people here in this moment as the angel of the Lord is is on the the verge of, of potentially bringing destruction upon all of Jerusalem? How does salvation come to Jerusalem? What was the cost? Well, as we read on, we see that salvation involves a costly sacrifice. Salvation involves a costly sacrifice. The prophet Gad tells David to build an altar to the Lord on this threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Um, a threshing floor was, was a place where after the harvest, uh, the grain was separated from the straw, the husks in a process called threshing. And so David approaches Aruna and he asks to purchase this threshing floor so that he can build an altar to the Lord and stop the plague. That's what, what God tells him. And so Aruna, when he's approached, you know, he tells David just, hey, man, take whatever you need, right? Take, the, take the, the wood and you can just have it. Just build your altar, no problem. But David insists on paying for it. In verse 24, he says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And so he buys the threshing floor and he buys the animals for the sacrifice and the wood and he builds this altar and he offers up these sacrifices and guess what happens? The plague ends. And so Jerusalem in this moment is saved, but it involves a costly sacrifice. And David, he offers up these sacrifices on the altar. He pays for the land. David pays the price in this moment for the people's salvation. Now, here's a really cool thing. Later on, we realize that this location, this, this, this threshing floor of Aruna is really significant for two reasons. First, it, it looks backward that, that actually this was located on Mount Moriah, which is the same place where years earlier, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God stopped Abraham and provided a ram for the sacrifice instead. Right? In this moment, God, Isaac was spared because the ram took his place, right? Here, their sacrifices offered up on the same location in order to spare the people of Jerusalem. But it's also the location where David's son Solomon would one day build the temple. So this very location, right, Aruna's field, becomes the place where the priests offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people of Israel. Right? This is the same place where the same thing happens, right? These priests are offering up sacrifices for, for the people's sin. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God makes this point over and over that salvation involves a costly sacrifice. There's always cost involved in salvation. And the same is true for our salvation. That in order for humanity to be saved from the disaster of separation from God, there is a cost involved. There is a costly sacrifice that needs to be made. And just as David offered up the sacrifice and paid the price to save the people of Jerusalem from the plague, we know that Jesus paid the cost of our salvation. 
that this moment here as David is taking the place and offering the sacrifice to save the people, he is taking, he is pointing ahead to, to Jesus who offered the sacrifice of himself. And he paid the price with his own life when he died on the cross. Jesus experienced the disaster of separation from God the Father on the cross when he took the sin of the world upon himself and so that we could be saved from that disaster. He paid the cost in our place. In the scripture reading that Karen read earlier from Hebrews 10, it speaks about the sacrifice that Jesus offered. Where It says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. These animal sacrifices that the priests offered at the temple, the writer of Hebrews says that they couldn't actually take away the sin of the people. They were imperfect sacrifices that, that were really just pointing ahead to the true sacrifice that was needed. And in verse 12, it continues, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Those priests in the Old Testament, they couldn't sit down at the temple because there was always more sacrifices needing to be made. There was always more sin. There was always more. But our high priest Jesus, when he offered his own body as the perfect sacrifice once for all, he sat down. It was finished. No more sacrifices needed. He was showing that the work was done. And so here's the good news, brothers and sisters, that, that we don't have to offer up sacrifices to pay for our sin because there's one who has done that for us. We don't have to make up for our sin by doing good deeds. We don't have to, to somehow appease a God who is who's angry with us. No, we don't have to try to pay God for our salvation. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He paid that costly sacrifice for us. And all that is left for us is to receive the benefits of what he's done. To trust him. To trust that he has done it for us. And that he's given us a restored relationship with God. A life with God that starts now and goes into the eternity. And the security of knowing that he has saved us and our lives are in his hands. Now next Sunday... We're going to finish off our series um, on David as we look at how near the very end of David's life, as David reflects on, on all the ways that God was merciful to him and gracious to him, what that led him to do near the end of his life. Uh, because, and we're going to see this next week, that, that when, we're, when we grasp how much God has forgiven us and how much it cost him to forgive and to bring us back to himself, it actually leads us to give back to him out of praise and honor and glory. Not to try to pay him back, but out of this loving gratitude and thanks. And we're going to look at that next week. But today I just want to close by, by inviting us to think a little bit about this, this question of where are we trusting? Where is our trust placed in our lives? And to invite us to trust the Lord. Because David, he was tempted to trust in military power for security. And we're tempted to trust in, in these other things like money or success or power, or these other things for security, for our worth. But God is the only one who will bring the security and fulfillment that we long for. Amen. He's the only one who will actually provide it for us. And so let's trust him because he's shown himself 
trustworthy as he went to the cross for us. And when you recognize that maybe you are trusting in something other than him, then let's be like David in this, in this passage and just confess that to him right away. Right? Just acknowledge that, Lord, forgive me. And then trust that Jesus has already paid the price for that sin in full. Thank, thank the Lord we're, we don't have to offer up sacrifices to pay for that sin. Right? Jesus has already done it in our place. So that we can be saved from the disaster that we deserve for trusting in those other things. And so call out to the Lord like David did and you can know with certainty that he will save you. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, acknowledge that that we often are tempted to trust in things other than you for, for security and for safety in our lives, Lord, that, that uh, we can look to these tangible things in, in our, our lives and, and, and we think about losing some of those things. It, it can sometimes cause us great distress. But we know that ultimately, Lord, our lives are in your hands and that ultimately um, our only real sense of security and hope can be found in you alone, Lord, that one day we all will will die, that, that, that all the things that we are trusting in for our security will be taken away, ultimately. And where will we end in, the, in that moment, Lord? Will we have trusted in you, ultimately, for our security and safety and be welcomed into your presence, Lord? Or will we face the disaster of, of turning away from you, Lord? And so we pray that, that, that you would bring us to confession in those moments where you, you bring to mind where maybe our conscience is stricken, for ways that we have been trusting in something else and that we would turn to you and we thank you that you are merciful and gracious. And we thank you, Lord, that, that you are the one who has done everything for us to, to, to forgive us, to not have us result in the calamity of, of, of not trusting you, God. That, that you stood in, in our place just as David stood there in the place of Jerusalem. That you offered yourself, Jesus, as the one and only sacrifice, the one that, that finished all sacrifices so that you could sit down and say, it is finished. There's no more to pay. You've paid it all. And so help us to trust that, Lord, to rest in it, and then to trust you, God, in every situation in our life because you are trustworthy. You are faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.